Welcome to the Nutrition Edit Podcast for high-performing women who want to up-level their health and feel their best in their bodies, careers, and personal lives. In this podcast, I'll sift through the latest nutrition and biohacking trends to filter out the BS, share what you really need to know, and help you put the good stuff into practice in a way that works for you. You'll get actionable tips from guest experts and myself on how to optimize your mindset, workouts, relationships, and environment, and start feeling like the badass woman you are. Join me as we bust through the bro science and male-centric health paradigm to help you achieve optimal performance and well-being, body, mind, and soul. Okay, so welcome back to the Nutrition Edit, everyone. I am super excited about my guest here with me today. We have Bruce Berry, the legendary Bruce Berry with us. Bruce is actually a legend here in the water sports community in the Pacific Northwest and further afield as well. So Bruce, welcome. I'm so happy to have you with us. Oh, it's just great. It's, it's exciting to be here. And Jeannie, I've, I've been all over your website. I, I've, I've gone through your blog. I've gone through the other podcasts and you've just got awesome stuff. And being invited on to contribute is, is really exciting for me. And hopefully I'll be able to add something of value because you sure have a lot of value in there for folks. Oh, that means a lot to me. I appreciate that, Bruce. Thank you. And I really appreciate your time. And I know that this is going to be so inspirational and exciting and educational for people too. I'd love to start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to be this amazing sort of water sports icon. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like you, I, I grew up in Southern California and I'm not a big guy. I'm 142 pounds right now, 5'7". And I think I was a trial for my parents because they put me in school when I was four years old. So not only was I the littlest guy in there, but I was the youngest guy. And so I went through all of my school stuff into college, you know, kind of being the, the wimpy kid, you know, and a- add into my small stature. Uh, <laughs> but I'm also, I was also really nearsighted with 2400 vision. So, you know, that the last guy chosen for the sports team and, you know, the guy that the bigger kids always picked on and, but we lived by the beach and the first time I got a surfboard in my hand, it clicked. Uh, So I started surfing when I was 10. And uh, by the time I was a junior in high school, things began to change because I began to physically fill out. I still wasn't very big, but I certainly wasn't a wimpy kid. I was a short, right. yeah, <laughs> a short yeah. Kid. in fact, in, in college, they used to call me the missing link. Uh, I mean, I was surfing five days a week and I weigh 142 now. I weighed 160 back then. It was all yeah, upper solid body, muscle. Mm-hmm. solid muscle. Yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty interesting. So yes, I mean, I grew up in Southern California, went to college in San Luis Obispo, which is central California, continued to surf in much rougher, much colder water. Very sharky water. <laughs> a little sharky, yeah. Um, met my wife-to-be at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo where I was going to school. And uh, next month, that uh, will be our 50th wedding anniversary. Awesome. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you. And, and so, you know, we had three daughters and my oldest is 43 and my twin daughters are 41. So I, I know that most of your clientele is, is female. So with me being the solitary male, in a house full of four females, and <laughs> I can imagine. Trust me, they they all they all cycled the same time. So you know, I, I'm completely housebroken. <laughs> I love it. 
you know, finally, even I was trained of the unforgivable sin of leaving the toilet lit up. I just got to the point where I just sat <laughs> down and life was good. So I continued to surf. Uh, we started uh, sailing and I we raced sailboats up and down the coast. And I'm not really good with math, but I've got a scientific mind. And, and so if I could memorize stuff as opposed to physics or something like that, I found I was okay. So biology, microbiology, human biology, all of that stuff really resonated with me and I became a microbiologist. And so I've got, you know, at this point, again, 50 years experience in the food industry. Uh, I did product development and food safety for every company that I worked for. When we talk about, you know, food and food labeling and, and how all that works. I mean, I was, I was the guy that did all this stuff. Mm. And I keep trying to retire and, you know, I'll, I'll say, this is, this is my date. And then a week before I walk in and say, Hey, you know, what if we cut this out? What if we cut that out? So, you know, I, I still kind of work. I do about an hour a day, largely remote, but I get called on nearly a daily basis and I'm on site, you know, a couple of half days a month. Of course, those are all days where nothing's going on weather-wise because I still surf whenever the coast calls and wind surf whenever there's wind here. Right. And paddle pretty much stand up paddle every day. I've had a couple of off days this year. I've I've been off the water three days so far. Wow. I haven't been on the water three days yet this year. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I am an unabashedly fair weather paddler, unlike yeah. my husband who will be out there in twenty degrees. No matter what. And yeah. Kristen, <laughs> your husband, <laughs> he's just an animal on the water. Yeah. And it was, it was fun. And I, I've had, I've been racing stand up now for about 10 years. And, and so for a lot of the top guys, it's, it's been fun as they've started because I've, I've always had a little bit more experience with them. And I can tell the guys that are going to be really fast and they're getting closer to me and closer to me and closer to me. And, and finally, there's the day that they beat me in a race. And then there's this big fist bump and stuff. Cause, you know, sometime around my late fifties, I kind of got to the point where, you know, to me, you know, if I can help other people achieve their goals, that's really the key to life. And so when I see these guys and if I can give them a couple of hints and help them develop paddling and they get better to me, you know what? That's just great. The other thing that. is, is uh, again, from a, a size standpoint, if you see standing next to your husband, Christian, it <laughs> looks like a dwarf standing next to a giant, right? So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm 72 and I'm still out there and I'm still pretty fast. But the real issue for me racing isn't, you'd think, the age, it's my size. Mm. So the same thing's going on with me racing stand-up as it would be if I were to, to play basketball against Christian. I mm. might be like an, an okay guard outside, but if I go in and try to shoot, I'm not yeah. going to be able to shoot because I'm going to have this guy up here that's just stuffing it right back down my throat. Yeah. But I would argue too that you're probably a better surfer than he is because your center of gravity is different. Being able to pop up on the board faster is different. Yeah. Whereas he just has a whole different and he's so upper body dominant, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> so the lower body stuff isn't as easy for him. So, you know, if he's having to navigate waves in the same way that you are with that quad strength and all those things, it's, I don't, I think that you would have him well beat. So you're 72 now. Bruce, and yeah. you said you started sup racing ten, just 10 years ago. So you started when you were in your early 60s. Right, right. That's fantastic. I think yeah. a lot of people, and that's something that I'd love for you to speak into a little bit, 
And you mentioned this before we started recording too, that it's never too late to get started. So, you know, having done all these other sports and been you know, successful with surfing and everything, I mean, what possessed you at 62 to be like, well, why not, why not race stand-up paddle boards? Yeah, well, what happened is I, I surfed in Southern California for the first 10 years of my surfing career. And then, you know, then we moved north. Then we moved to the Bay Area. I okay. didn't surf as much then, but I raced sailboats. And then we moved up here to the Seattle area. And I raced sailboats and even further from the coast. And then I started windsurfing. So mm -hmm. I've, I've windsurfed for over 30 years. Cool. And I, I got to the point where, you know, I'd be down in the Columbia River Gorge and windsurfing in this, this really heavy, big air. And it's pretty much like surfing on steroids. So, you know, you, you can only do that so long before you begin racking up injuries and sometimes pretty big ones. So at, at this point, I mean, it's going to sound crazy to say this, but I, I've literally strained or broken every part of my body. Wow. I just got to the point where my wife said, are you ever going to learn? And that was about the time that the stand-up paddling came about. Okay. And I thought, well, okay, so here we go. So this is a little bit uh, less intense. This is another way to do it. I was running a lot, and any runner knows that you, you can run and you can do three, four, five, six miles a day for a long time, but eventually it catches up to you. Yeah. And the stand-up, I actually found was a, a better full body workout. And it wasn't just the aerobic, it's everything. Yeah, core, isometric, yeah. Isometric, everything you get going, you know, seems to work with stand-up. And, you know, for me, I don't do anything half speed. <laughs> Typically my, my, daily, my daily thing, I live on Lake Sammamish, I've got fixed buoys. And so I, I kind of, I'm racing myself every day. And I go out and uh, if I'm not windsurfing or surfing, I'll go out and I'll, I'll do like a quarter mile warm up and a quarter mile cool down, but then I'll go flat out for a little bit over two miles. And, you know, my, my race pace, my, my cadence is about 72 strokes a minute. So when, when, when you think about how that works, yeah, I'm taking more than a stroke a second. So yeah, I just, I just found it to be this, this just great workout. Plus, you know, it, it gets you outside and it's a break in the day and it's a break in the routine. And, you know, most of the time uh, I paddle here on Lake Sammamish where I live, but I'll, I'll go other places and I race up and down the coast. I mean, I've raced in the big ones in California and the big ones in Hood River and the big ones in Oregon. So yeah, it's just, it's just a kick. And then the community is awesome as well. Yes, that is so true. There's something about stand-up paddle. And I don't know if it's just the SUP or if, because I feel like all the wing foiling community here too is really wonderful, but all the water sports people in this area, I am always impressed and blown away by how down to earth and welcoming and kind, and they all have integrity. I mean, it's, and they're just fun, cool people. And there's none of that sort of douchebaggery, if you will, that you see in other sports communities, at least in my experience. I mean, I grew up snowboarding and there's just a lot of nonsense and ego. And I don't see that in the water sports community. It really isn't. Now, then you go and, and hit the coast and the douchebaggery is on steroids. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't really much matter, you know, where you go. And you'd think that, you know, going out to Westport on the coast here, people would be a little bit more mellow. No, 
Uh, it, it's it's not. They're, they're kind of used to me at this point. I've been going out there for 25 or 30 years, but there's still moments. And you know, I'm just, just to the point where I, I just come up thinking, guys, you know, I just really don't need this. What's wrong with you? Right. And, yeah. and realize it isn't, it isn't going to change. Yeah, it's too bad. But at least we have our amazing group here who is right. to lean into. So you said that you're getting out paddling every day. Do you do other training outside of your actual sports? Like, are you in the gym lifting or on the bike? Like, tell me a little bit more about that. Have you ever yeah. sort of deviated from that thing or, or, you know, of just being in the water all the time? Do you augment it? What is your actual training schedule look like and has it shifted over the years? Yeah, it, it has. One of my injuries about 10 years ago, I rearranged my left knee. Rearranged. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, I, I could have had surgery for it. And they said, yeah, you know, you'll be off the water for six months and it, it'll probably be better. It'll probably be okay. Well, I'm not going to wait six months for a probable. Probably, right. Uh, so I, I really can't run much anymore. You know, I, I can do a day where I can do three miles. But I, I can't go out and do five or six, and I can't do three miles a day or three in a row because my knee just doesn't line up right. I mean, all you have to do is yeah. look at it, and it's obviously at an off angle. So when I surf, again, that's that's a little bit different. That's a little bit more upper body, and that's a different musculature than than stand up. And in fact, when you look at at pro surfers, if you don't think about it. You, you expect to see these guys that are just, you know, massively built, you know, kind of like the rock or whatever, but they're, yeah. they're not. I mean, you, you look at, at Kelly Slater, who's, you know, the greatest of all time, right? Surfing. And, and Kelly looks like a swimmer. It's not that he, he isn't muscular. It, it's just that he doesn't have high definition all over where you look at, at a lot of really good stand up paddlers and they're ripped. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I've got that going on and, and that, kind of does different muscles than paddling and then the windsurfing and wind foiling uh, definitely does different muscles and when i surf and or wind foil i'm usually out for you know two or three hours at a time i don't do any more than that because what i've found is that if i go too long in any given day then i really do need to take a bit of a break and i don't like to take breaks so mm-hmm. i kind of limit it to about two hours now just, uh, just I, the two, two to three hours. Just the two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being kind yeah. of sarcastic thinking yeah, of my no, like no. 30 to 60 minutes that I'm yeah. putting in a few days a week. Yeah. And and then, you know, when I'm, when I paddle, so, you know, I, I paddle for about 30 minutes with my warm up and cool downs, but then every other day I'll come in and I'll do uh, curls and, and they're not heavy. It's, it's 20 pounds, but I'll do 10 sets of 40 which is, you know, 400 curls. And then I'll do two four-minute plank sets. And so I do a minute and a half of regular plank and then a minute of of forearm plank and then another minute and a half of regular. And then I give it a little bit of a break. And then five minutes later, I come back and and do it all over again. And and what I found is, is that as I've gotten, as I continue to get stronger, I, I used to have to give it like an hour or an hour and a half after I paddled before I went in and, and did those things. Now I, I come in, <laughs> take my wet, soaking wet bandana off and just go and lay right into it. Wow. Uh, and it just, just doesn't matter. So uh, the reason I don't do really heavy stuff is 
because I've been broken a lot. Okay. And and when I do the heavy stuff, it it flares everything up. Just like I can't mm-hmm. run heavily anymore. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't lift heavily. I mean, literally for me, something as as crazy as as opening a twist top jar mm-hmm. will literally throw a tendon in my right elbow off. Jeez. And it, it takes me, you know, a bit of time to recover from that. Yeah. So when we talk about aging and, and think about aging, I mean, what, what happens is, you know, people get these injuries and, and I've, I've had them all. Mm-hmm. You, you, you get them and then you think, oh, man, that, that just that really bites. I need to back off and, and you right. back off and then your muscle atrophies and then you yes, can't do what you used to, to get do. back into it. And then mm-hmm. you, you back off again. So it's this this wicked, wicked cycle you get into. I mean, I, I literally about 15 years ago uh, thought that I was going to have to to stop windsurfing and probably stop surfing because I was in in chronic pain. And if you take mm-hmm. You know, pain at a level of 10 being maximum, I was at a, a four to five every day in my back and my shoulders, unless I tweaked it, which would put me into a higher level. I found a chiropractor who did something called biomechanics. And the first thing mm-hmm. he wanted to do was take x-rays. Mm. And this is, is going to sound impossible, but I guarantee you it's true because it showed up on the x-rays. If you take a line between my shoulders, a straight line across my spine was pushed one inch to the right. Wow. That's, that's so significant. Yeah. It's no wonder my right shoulder didn't, <laughs> didn't work really well. It's going to happen. I mean, stuff happens as you age, right? Yeah. And so you've got to find a way to not, not work through the pain, mm-hmm. but try to identify the root cause of the pain. Yes. And try and find a way to solve it. Drugs are not the answer. Yeah. Um, you know, PT is quite often the answer. Uh, I mean, you may need to take drugs for a limited period of time because something, you know, can't happen otherwise. Surgeries are, are always risky. I mean, I've, I have had, you know, two. They were unavoidable. I've got a bionic groin. I've got 18 square inches of mesh in my groin. When you fall out of the sky wrong on a sailboard for, from 15 or 20 feet up, uh, land on one foot unbalanced, it, it tends to put a strain in places. Yeah. Like <laughs> Unnatural. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thank gosh. Uh, well, that brings me to a question because I've dealt with chronic pain before. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of beat on my body growing up. I grew up riding horses, doing hunter jumpers. I've been thrown off horses. I've, you know, fallen off over jumps, whatever. It landed on my head, landed on my neck. Um, broke a million things snowboarding, again, landing mm-hmm. on my neck breaking collarbones, all kinds of things. And at the time, I think I was, I kept going because I was young and stupid. I think though when we get older and we are a little wiser or we are more cautious and like you say, you know, you don't want to lose that time. But I think that you're right. Like so many people just give up or because they've lost ground, they get discouraged and then they don't start up again. What, What are the things that have kept you feeling excited. And I don't necessarily like to use the word motivated because I think that motivation ebbs and flows for all of us, even those of us who are like you can extremely consistent with your daily activity. But I would say, you know, driven to keep going or that keep you, yeah, let's just say motivated to to do the thing, even if 
it's not the thing you love the most or you have to dial it back. Share a little bit about that. It's going to be a personal journey for everyone. Granted, I mean, right, right now, I, I don't work full time. I don't have kids at home. In theory, I've got all the time in the world to, to rest and, and recuperate. And that's one of the reasons why I can push pretty hard every day. But again, yeah. one, of, one of the keys is, is that you've got to get to the root cause. And mm -hmm. you know, with my back and shoulder problems, I knew that something was messed up. Uh, and I'd been to doctors and I didn't like what they had to say. And I kept looking and, you know, finally, just by chance, I heard a presentation from this chiropractor who was a triathlete and he'd done a little bit of surfing. And he talked about, you know, how he would do x-rays and stuff and, and actually, you know, really try to dial into what was going on wrong with people. And, you know, I, I had two discs that were only half the size of what they were supposed to be. Oh, and, wow. And basically what he did is he, he, he put me on a series of torture devices and racks. Oh my God. <laughs> I can picture them now. I know exactly which ones you're talking about. And, and he, he stretched me out because what happened is I got the injuries and then I pushed through the pain and the injuries healed with really tightened uh, ligament. And mm. so as the ligament healed, it pulled everything out of alignment. Right. And the more I pushed, the worse it got. And so what he did is he stretched everything to get it back into alignment. I mean, literally, as the discs in my back began to be relieved from the compression they were under, I'd get my wife's car every, every couple of weeks, and I'd have to adjust the rearview mirror up because I was wow. getting just a little bit taller. That's incredible. I gained half an inch. Nice. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I thought it was just age. <laughs> That's incredible. The root cause thing is really what comes down to, right? I mean, I, for years with all of my injuries that I'd had, gone to chiropractors, had body work, rolfing, you name it. Yeah. But the structural issues weren't necessarily being addressed. So if right. you have those structural issues... It doesn't matter how many times you get cracked or massaged, everything's going to get pulled back out of alignment. Exactly. Hello, nutrition editors. If you've been listening and you're ready to put this work into practice in your own life, head over to joliverwellness.com and book a free 30-minute chat to learn more about coaching with me or to check out my self-study programs. I also invite you to join my email list where you'll hear from me a few times each month with recipes and strategies for reducing stress, improving your metabolic health, and working out smarter, not harder. Subscribers will also receive exclusive offers in my programs that I don't share anywhere else, and you'll get early access to registration for my Body Liberation Together group program. I look forward to connecting with you, and let's get back to the show. And, you know, so I was going to this, the chiropractor for about three years. And at, at that point, I was really pretty much out of pain on a normal day-to-day -day standpoint. My wife had been doing yoga for years, you know, three or four days a week and, you know, extensively. And she'd been trying to get me to do it for years. And I kept going, nah. Uh, <laughs> and she said, well, you know, Kelly Slater does it and Jerry Lopez does it and all these She's just throw out all these pro surfers that were, were doing yoga. And I go, nah. Well, so about five years ago for my birthday, she got me a, a one-month pass. And she said, I don't care if you go or not. 
But if, <laughs> if you know me, you're probably too young to remember this, but re- remember on the, uh, the old nickels, they, they had the buffalo on them? Yep. They, yeah, well, I'm so tight with a nickel, I can squeeze the shit out of the buffalo. <laughs> so, so there was, there was no way. I love it. I was going to let that past go to waste. Sure. And <laughs> she uh, was a smart woman. She knew that, didn't you know, she? she? She did. So, you know, I've been doing it for about two weeks and, and then I went surfing and everybody has a good day or a great day once in a while, a, a day that's sure. just really different. And, and so I, I went and I, I blew up and I'm going, oh my gosh, what just happened? And then I went back again and, and I kept doing the yoga. And then I, I went back again. And, you know, two weeks later, I surfed again. Same thing. It's like I'm, I'm surfing 20 years younger. Wow. And, and the way I would describe it is that all of a sudden, rather than my body being on a two-foot spring that was completely compressed, my mm. body was on a six-foot spring that was going fully up and fully down. Well, again, it's, it's this whole idea of the way the tendons and ligaments and bone and musculature all work. And what happened is this, this fairly gentle yoga on top of the work that, that the chiropractor had done actually relieved all of the built-up stresses throughout my whole system of tendons and ligaments and, and the way all that stuff works which gets into another interesting part on aging that we'll cover in a little bit. So to make a really short story long, as I just did, <laughs> you, you've got to find the root cause and you know, find a good physical therapist. If you're in pain or if, if you've got limited mobility, find something you can do. Maybe it's walking. Walking is absolutely awesome. We were built to walk. Yes, I push that all the time, yeah. Maybe you can't do that because it's too much pain on your lower extremities. Uh, you can possibly get into a pool and do pool-based exercise, and it's still doing the same thing. It's, it's still working the muscle. And that's the really key thing because what we find as we get into aging is that within the muscle, there's something called mitochondria. And each one of our cells has mitochondria. For a given really healthy person, for a muscle cell, a single muscle cell, you might to have you might have one to two thousand of these little mitochondria buddies in there. A heart, maybe three to four thousand. The brain has upwards of five thousand. And we used to think that the mitochondria did nothing more than just create energy. You know, they convert the glucose to energy, and off we go. Now, what we know is that mitochondria are hugely responsible for immune function. And yep. so, if you have mitochondrial dysfunction, or if you have a lack of mitochondria, you've got bad immune function. Bad function overall, I would argue. Overall, to the extent where a really good thing to remember is that muscle is the currency of longevity. Yes. Amen. So find a way to work through the pain, not work through it, but I can deal with it, but find a way to get to the root cause. Uh, And then find a way to be able to get moving again. You've done such a good job in your blogs and stuff on nutrition. We typically don't eat right. Uh, We certainly eat differently now than we did even when I was a kid growing up because of the way that that foods are available. And and hey, I I understand it. I mean, I I was the guy, I mean, I did the labeling. I developed the food. Yeah. So you've seen this trajectory over the years of how things have shifted. I've seen it. I, 
I, I followed the science. I work for a meat snack company. I, I specifically made meat snacks that kept this fat, bad, carb, good concept in mind. And mm -hmm. that is absolutely catastrophic science for our society. Yeah. You've seen the graphs. I've seen the graphs. I've, I've got presentations full of the graphs that show that in 1976, all of a sudden, something absolutely grotesque began to happen to U.S. health spans. Yeah. And now it's worldwide. It's yeah. not just us. We've imported this disaster everywhere. Yeah, it's true. And really quick, I want to put a pin in that. And let's, I love the word health span. Tell us what you mean by health span, because I think that people think of, you know, lifespan or longevity, but when we talk about health span, we're actually talking about aging well, right? Like enjoying each state of your life, feeling good and vibrant and being able to move at each stage of life. Is that how you see that term? It, exactly. Perfectly stated. When, when we look at the data, uh, and it used to be U.S. Now it's now it's worldwide. Lifespan, you know, roughly in the U.S. it's it's it was seventy eight years. Now now it's seventy six, uh, biggest drop in a century in the last two years. And it's not just COVID; it's a combination of many things. Right. We'll talk about some of that later. But basically, if if you take that seventy eight lifespan, uh, health span is a difference between great, robust health, I'm feeling good, and a downward spiral. And generally. You know, we're, we're thinking statistically, it looks like that spiral is about 10 years before end of life. Mm. Yeah, that makes for a not fun 10 years, last 10 years. Not so fun 10 years. So, yeah. So your age cohort, which is another really interesting thing. There was a study that came out just last year, and it was called the birth cohort effect. And what the study found, and it was a meta-analysis, tens of thousands of people and what it found is that cancer rates are statistically exploding with every 10-year difference in birth cohort. An example, 30 to 40-year-olds have statistically much higher rates of cancer than 40 to 50-year-olds had when they were 10 years younger. That's and it's, insane. it's exponential. It's so and disturbing. It's worse in the U.S., but it's, it's a first-world problem. You know, so what? causes that. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what causes it is, is we begin to think about how different our lives are and our environment is than it was 30 years ago when we were younger or our parents' age or our grandparents' age. And, you know, at, at this point, you know, I almost want to back up, not 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, mm -hmm. but, but maybe go back about 2 billion years. Yeah, which is a ways. But I think it's a good thing to do because I think that we need to kind of look at the drastic difference between how our ancient ancestors would have, the environment, the terrain, so to speak, that they would have lived in, what our bodies would have evolved to deal with or the environment we would have been surviving in versus now with all the modern conveniences. I love that Darren Oleen calls them fatal conveniences. Oh, good. Um, but 
aspects of our modern world that make life easier. They're actually making us sicker and they're shortening our lifespans. And I love that you sent me an actual timeline too, where you have mapped this all out, like basically like the history of man on earth and, and, you know, how things have changed. So yeah, give us a little, you know, kind of encapsulated view of that. Cause I think it's really important for people to understand. Yeah. 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 So if we, if we go back to the very beginnings of life, I mean, obviously we don't, we don't know exactly. We, we can't label the culprit. But it was a single-celled organism that's called LUCA, Last Universal Common Ancestor, hmm. LUCA. Okay, so LUCA was either RNA or DNA-based. You know, nobody knows for sure. Uh, DNA is, is what we think of as containing the genetic code. RNA is sort of the messenger boy. And a really good way to think of DNA and RNA is that DNA is like read-only memory. RNA is random access memory. They're held on chromosomes. Chromosomes are like our hard drives, and it's held within each cell. Well, the interesting thing is, is when you look at, at each cell, and when you, when you think about life, you know, there's, there's really four definitions of, of life, of a living organism. One, it's got a uniform intact body. Every single cell organism does. Two, it receives inputs and has metabolic processes that react to them. Three, based on those metabolic processes and the inputs it receives, it has outputs, it sends out signals. And four, it self-replicates. So the difference between a bacteria and a virus is that a virus isn't alive because it can't self-replicate. It's got to invade one of our cells and use our cells as, as a pirate. Right. So the reality when you think about you know, what we really are is, again, each one of our cells is alive and sentient. We've got 30 trillion of them. That's 30 with 12 zeros behind it. To make that work, there's another 70 trillion microbial cells within us. We have more bacterial DNA in us than our own human DNA. A really cute way to look at it that's not necessarily untrue, is that we're nothing more than a nice walking habitat for a big pile of bacteria. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like those jellyfish that you see. They're not it's one like jellyfish. That. They're actually a colony of different yeah. organisms. So for, for me to just talk or for me to stretch out my arm in exclamation, I've literally got to activate somewhere in the area of a hundred trillion sentient organisms to do that. The mind boggles. We think we control it all. <laughs> we don't. We humans are arrogant, aren't we? Yeah, we are. 70% of our metabolism is done autonomously. The reason it's done autonomously is because our cells don't trust us. They don't believe we'll do it right. And a really good trick to prove that to yourself is hold your breath and let me know how long that takes. Because yep. at some point, your cell is going to take over and say, hey, stupid, knock, knock, <gasps> big breath. Yeah. Okay. So um, the, other, the other thing about our, our cells and life and aging and everything else is, is that, again, this, this goes back billions of years from a life standpoint. From the standpoint of, of Homo sapiens, it's, it's one to two million, depending upon how you look at it. Uh, so our cells have this tremendous buildup of information on how to live. 
And when we think about aging, you know, there's a big difference between how we age and why we age. Mm. And the why is really yep. simple. We age because life past procreation is not a benefit to nature. Mm-hmm. Our cells literally are programmed to take us out because it is nature's first order of conservation to remove a population that can no longer propagate because gene pool propagation is the reason for all life. Mm-hmm. It's that brutally simple. Yep. So we're, we're programmed to self-destruct. Yep. We self-destructed at a different rate now than all other land-based mammals because of something called the grandmother effect. What happens is that grandmothers help their daughters have more progeny. And so if you think back about 50,000 years ago when this, this first began to be noticed, what happens with, with natural selection is you have you know, this, this nice older lady and her daughter has more kids and then they have more kids and her older lady genes get passed on to the daughters and they get passed on to the sons. And then they have more people that get older and they pass it on. So, so we developed uh, this ability to live longer about 50,000 years ago. Uh, and we know this because there's a thing called paleopathology. Hmm. Uh, and the interesting thing is, is that, you know, again, with this, this whole concept of getting older and how everything works, is that during the Paleolithic period, Stone Age, which ended about 10 to 12,000 years ago. And this is the whole, again, the whole concept of, of paleo eating and, and paleo this, paleo that. Sure. Uh, those people were bigger. Mm. They were bigger than what came after in the Neolithic. Uh, in fact, on average, in the Fertile Crescent in the Pacific, in the, um, in the ancient Near East, uh, where most of these bones are found, it was only in the last 40 or 50 years when the average height regained that of the paleo years. Mm, interesting. Yeah. They, yeah. Well, every, everything was different about them. And they were hunter-gatherers. You know, for them to be in a group of over 125 people was rare because that type of, of living couldn't support a larger right. population. So they, they ate on the fly. They ate berries, nuts. There really wasn't a whole lot of farming going on. The farming started with the Neolithic period about 10,000 years ago. And what happened is, again, at the study of bones, what we found is that the cause of death began to change. Mm. So in the Stone Age, the typical cause of death was occupational. It was childbirth, injury from accident, or warfare. In the Neolithic period, Childbirth still was high, but it was disease. Mm. What happened is as we began farming and living in clustered communities, the disease started. That's literally the price of civilization. Wow. And that's the beginning of, of this change of, of how we got to where we are now. Mm-hmm. Because what's, what's happened is we've gone from a point where we had an okay food source but we had to work to get it to the point now where we don't have to work. We don't have to move to do anything. We can spend our whole lives doing what you and I are doing right now. We don't have to leave these screens. It is a totally, completely alien environment that our bodies were not designed for. 
a really interesting thing, and I was looking it up the other day, is in rural Africa, the average woman still has to walk four miles a day. They walk two miles to get their water. They walk two miles back. And when they walk back, they're carrying 40 pounds of water. Yeah. I mean, we can't even fathom that. And everything we've done, and this goes back five minutes to, you know, when you began this kind of monologue, everything we've done to make life easier has made it more disruptive to our genes because none of this is the way we were designed to live. Screens, not so bueno. Light at night, not so bueno. Other than firelight, right? Other than firelight. Well, yeah, that's not really, you know. Orange hue, it's all blue lights shining in our eyes. You've got good information on your blog about circadian rhythms. Okay. And we're completely disrupting our circadian rhythms with all of this blue light at night. In fact, uh, a guy in 2017 got a Nobel Prize for discovering that almost every single one of our cells is governed by its own unique circadian rhythm. Isn't that so fascinating? So, you know, getting back to this idea of bright blue light during the day, which makes us secrete serotonin, which is our daily upper and this, mm-hmm. this amber firelight at night, which does melatonin, which yeah. is our downer, that's the way we're supposed to live. And oh, by the way, when you look at what melatonin really does, it's not just for sleep. It's massively impacting the immune function. Yeah. Brain detoxification. and Yeah. Yeah. So much. So we, we've got that going on. We've, we've got the fact that we're not moving. We've got the fact that our food supply is corrupted. We've got the fact that we've screwed up our circadian rhythms. You've also got good information on detox. There was a landmark study done a couple of years ago where they tested 400 people for chemical toxins and found the average person had around 100 different man-made toxins stored in their fat. Yeah. Have you ever seen those shows like Dr. Pimple Popper? No. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Where they remove some like giant like cyst or something from yeah. these pimples. And I always, Bruce, am like so desperate for them to find some sort of toxicology lab where they could go in and test what's in that cyst and that fat because we do sequester toxins in our fat cells. And so I'm always <laughs> curious, like what would they find? What would be there? But you're right. And, and, because you're in food science and, you know, I've harped on this a lot, but I think it's always, it always bears repeating because, well, organic food is certainly not perfect. I do believe that minimizing our exposure to all of these man-made chemicals as much as we can is a crucial piece to preserving that health span and even just enjoying where we're at right now, whatever stage of life that is, just taking good care of our bodies So as someone with a food science mind and background, what are the biggest, most detrimental shifts that you've seen as far as what's being used in the food supply now that wasn't maybe, you know, even 20, 30 years ago? I mean, I talk a lot about with my clients, especially in my, you know, detox programs and things about obesogens and endocrine disrupting chemicals. You know, there's a lot of lawsuits out there now against Monsanto over glyphosate or Roundup. 
which, you know, the World Health Organization has declared a probable carcinogen. I mean, there's so many of these things. So from your perspective, what do you think the biggest, most detrimental shifts have been there? Yeah, that's a tough one, especially, I mean, even something as simple as, as drinking water. We don't, yeah. we really don't know what, what's in our water anymore. And, you know, the whole idea of, is it fluoridated? You know, do we have that in there? And if it is, what does that cause? We all kind of have a basic understanding now that excess sugar is mm -hmm. bad. And that's, that's pretty common knowledge. There's becoming greater knowledge about the fact that fat isn't really bad. You know, fat's not this evil thing we thought it was for a long time. I'll be honest, until 10 years ago, I wouldn't do butter. I'd be really careful about any saturated fat because I thought that right. saturated fat was the devil. Uh, oh, and doctors will still tell you that if you have high yeah. cholesterol or you have anything, you know, heart disease related or concerns, that's the first thing that they tell you about the saturated yeah. fats. So the problem with, with the fat is this sleeper idea of essential fatty acids. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there are essential omega-6 fatty acids and there are essential omega-3 fatty acids. They do two different things. Right. The omega-6 essentials foster inflammation. They're supposed to. Yep. The omega-3s are anti-inflammatory. They're supposed to be. The problem is, is, is that with, again, this disastrous, you know, fat, bad, carb, good thing, and let's eat heart-healthy oils, what happened is we went from a, an ancestral ratio of kind of like one part omega-3 to maybe four parts omega-4, which, which kind of kept inflammation, you know, pro-inflammatory stuff, anti-inflammatory stuff in balance to the standard American diet, which is upwards of one to 20, one part omega-3 to 20 parts omega-6. Mm -hmm. That causes yeah, masses massive inflammation. And the problem is, is that you don't know it. You have no idea. Everybody's got bank accounts. Everybody knows what it's like to draw down on their accounts. And you know, you, you look it up online, you think, oh, well, I've got this, that, or the other. I'm cool. That the problem with this inflammation from the omega-6s is, is you have no idea it's going on. You have no idea what's happening to you with it. And what most people are doing is they're massively drawing down, again, immune function, based on this overconsumption of omega-6s yep. with their immune function already wiped out by mitochondrial dysfunction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it, it, it's just, again, this, this spiral that goes on and on. Also, you know, one other thing going on with, with diet, and that is micronutrients. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's a micronutrient? Well, we know that, that vitamins are micronutrients and we need to take them. And some of us are aware that, you know, there's, there's all of these um, minerals, you know, potassium, oh, the bad sodium, the bad chloride, <laughs> uh, calcium, uh, magnesium. You know, what most people don't realize is, is that other than sodium and chloride, most of us are grossly deficient right. in all of these minerals. And again, you, you don't run right. A really curious thing is, is that with sodium and potassium, it's not so much too much sodium, it's the absolute lack of potassium. Mm, mm -hmm. One of the, you know, the nutrition labeling was, was a good thing. And I was, I was involved uh, from the get-go in that. I was involved in working with them on stuff that made sense and stuff that, that didn't make sense. And with the updated nutrition labeling of about two or three years ago, 
uh, you'll see that vitamin D and potassium all of a sudden went on the label. And you'll notice that it's zero, 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 oh, zero, zero, zero. Well, if, if these are essential nutrients and it's always zero, how do you get them? So that the problem with sodium and potassium, again, is, is that the balance is, is all whacked out. Sodium is not necessarily bad. In fact, sodium is necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, guess what can cause high blood pressure? Low sodium. Shocker. But you told me that it was bad yeah, for me. It's the opposite. It's bad if you don't get potassium. Oh, well, I get right. plenty of potassium. I eat a banana. Yeah, how many do you eat? I eat a banana a day. One-tenth of the RDA is in that single banana. Yeah, it's a fraction of what you need. I want to back up just a little bit, Bruce. Yeah. Hold, hold that thought where you're at. Let's let's put a pin in that because I want to come back to that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I want to go back because you had mentioned that shift in 1976. Yeah. And what I think you were getting at is, is that shift where there was some bad science done that shifted kind of this focus onto fats as being the bad guy, the, the enemy when it came to cardiovascular health, et cetera. When that happened, we started to, again, like you said, move away from these natural, like ancestral sources of fat, you know, cooking with tallow, which is beef fat, or maybe, you know, rendered duck fat or bacon fat, pork fat, whatever, butter, full fat, cream, milk, yogurt, things like that. And instead we shifted to the canola oils, these heavily processed, what we call industrialized, quote unquote, vegetable oils, right? Which are those ultra high omega-6. And I bring this up because people should know, you know, one of the reasons that we see dramatic shifts in our health when we start cooking at home, if we're using the right fats to cook with at home, instead of eating out all the time, is that in a restaurant setting or any kind of commercial setting, they're typically using, you know, vast quantities of these industrialized oils, vegetable oils, seed oils that are highly inflammatory. Is that is that correct? Uh, and that's absolutely. what's kind of throwing this ratio off of our omegas. Yeah, and read your food labels, okay? Mm -hmm. And what you'll find is is that on just about any processed food, sometimes if if you get something that's that's organic, like we use the organic avocado mayo, which is okay. Forget the guy's name, but he's he's you know famous. Primal and, Kitchen. Yeah, yeah, Primal Kitchen. He's he's famous and holistic. Mark Sisson. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There you go. And what you'll see is is that it's all these, as you said, industrial seed oils. Those are all omega six. Canola's got a little bit of omega-3, but most of them have zero omega-3, all omega-6. And so where do the omega-3s come from? Well, they come from cold water fish. Actually, you know, a little bit of, you know, flax seed, a couple of seeds here and there. It's actually a little bit hard to find these days. So I recommend supplementing with omega-3s just yeah, to make sure you're just to make sure you're getting them. There's also, right. and this one takes a lot of work, and Jeannie, that's it's something you probably do for your clients. There's also a calculator called the chronometer. Yep. And that's what we use. All yep. my clients okay. get access to chronometer. <laughs> chronometer. Excellent. Yeah. And it is, it's absolutely, it's stunning when, when you do that. My wife, Pat, and I, I mean, we eat pretty good. I'll do all the inputs and stuff, and I'll, I'll look at it uh, before I, I add the supplements. And I mean, this is, this is crazy, but I only get about 30% of the RDA for potassium, uh, a little bit of it from my banana, 
I get it in my coffee and I get it in my Merlot wine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, other than that, and, and you know, if you're, if you're active, I mean, if you sweat a lot and, and I do, you're just blowing those electrolytes out and, and that RDA, that doesn't mean squat. That's probably, you know, a 50% or more less than what you really need. Exactly. Yeah. Right now I take about twice the RDA of magnesium and, and I have to, because unless I supplement with magnesium and potassium and a little bit of sodium, I get massive cramping at night. Yeah. I think most of us don't get enough magnesium and that is especially true for women. And I think that that is one of the problems with a lot of these, you know, chemicals that we're spraying crops with and things, and we're not doing regenerative farming, which means we're not resting soils in between crops or rotating crops the way that indigenous people typically do. So we're depleting our soils of all of these incredible minerals and micronutrients that are so crucial for our optimal health, right? And then if you include other chemicals that are disrupting, you know, enzymatic processes and things, it makes the problem even worse. And so I think that it can help to supplement, even if we are eating plenty of fresh, real foods, because, you know, unless you're growing your own crops or your own vegetables and things in your yard with really rich soil and you're resting that soil and, you know, rotating it or buying your food from a farm that does that, I mean, how many of those even exist in this country, we're just simply not getting the level of those micronutrients in our foods that should be naturally occurring. Would you agree yeah, with that? Absolutely correct. We're so as a society focused on, on body image and for women, it's so much, so much more difficult because again, from an ancestral standpoint for a woman, I mean, your cells know that the guy is going to go out and he's going, going to go out on this bison hunt, but then, you know, what? oh, Hey, we, we found some barley beer or something and we're about a week late you know that you're stuck by yourself. And, and so your cells look at starvation as being your primary mm -hmm. threat. And you are yeah, absolutely exactly. programmed to protect your progeny and your childbearing organs, which is why you know women tend to be a little bit fatter. I, I never understood why my wife was so cold. She's got a jacket on when I'm running around without a shirt on. <laughs> well, what it is, is, is literally women are wired differently with the blood vessels more internal to again protect the childbearing organs right and and so you get this this situation where you're just you know kind of built to lock on and store calories mm -hmm. so you know I'm, I'm i'm looking this up and i thought well the national bariatric society that would be a good place to look and see what they have to say and according to the national bariatric society and i don't know who you can get that's more credible than that regarding weight loss they said one of the primary reasons for overeating and binge eating is a lack of micronutrients. Your body is starving for nutrition and all of these hunger pangs you have are to try to get into you what you're missing. And it's not the empty calories. And I tell people that's one of the things I say over and over, probably more than anything else. Overeating is not your issue. You're not eating enough of the right foods. Yes. You're not eating Amen. enough of the right foods that are stimulating that leptin, which tells your brain, like, I'm 
full and satiated, that's stimulated by, by real food that's nutrient dense. All of this empty calorie food is stimulating our ghrelin, if we want to you know, call it the hunger hormone, just for ease of explanation, you know, that's saying, no, I'm not getting what I really need here. Keep eating, keep feeding me, give me something I really need. And, you know, I always use the, the donut and chicken breast comparison because the calories are roughly the same as a, you know, standard glazed donut and a, what, four to six ounce chicken breast. Yeah. Roughly what, 250 calories. But the actual makeup of those foods is so drastically different. And the chemical reactions, everything that happens in your body when you ingest those foods is drastically different. I know plenty of people who could easily down four or five donuts. You couldn't eat four or five chicken breasts. Most right. people could not, right? right? I certainly couldn't. Eating more than like one and a half would be a serious challenge for me. But you could have several donuts before your brain would actually be like, whoa, <laughs> you'd probably feel sick before you actually felt full and satiated. Well, you've outlined the addictive process. Yeah. And again, that that is literally by cellular design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because the body expects to go through periods of starvation. It says, this is going to keep me from starving. There it is. I'm going to lock onto it. Yeah. Our cells are hardwired for survival, not aesthetics, according to our modern standards, right? That's that's absolutely correct. Yeah, we, we have to keep thinking back to the fact that we're literally paleo. We're, we're cave people. They're living in an alien environment. Right. Yeah. But as you explain in your timeline, like our, you know, quote, modern society, like how many decades are we even really talking about that? It's, it's a tiny blip on the map when we're talking about the time of just humans being alive, right? And the, the grand scheme of things, this is all very new to us. We're just not adapted for it. Yeah. I mean, we, we think of, of history and prehistory and, and the advent of writing to be this, this big dividing line. And it was so far back. When, when we look at percentage-wise, uh, what it is from the standpoint of just Homo sapiens, not genus homo, but just homo sapiens, it's less than 2% of our time that we've been able to write. Wow, less than 2%. That's staggering to think about. Yeah, so, so that's how new all of this is. Which is incredible. I mean, I think it really puts things into perspective when we can kind of go, oh, wait. And I, I, you know, I always try and think along those lines too, that you know, do I think everyone has to eat really strictly paleo and never touch a grain or a legume? No, but I think that most of the time in most ways, if we can kind of think back and go, wait a minute, let's just simplify this all and get back to, I think fasting, I think is a, is a good example of this. You know, everyone's into the intermittent fasting right now. And essentially all they're doing is skipping breakfast every day. Mm -hmm. Well, that's probably not how it would have gone <laughs> with our Paleolithic ancestors. It would have probably been much more truly intermittent, meaning kind of more random. You know, we would have had feast times when food was more available, and then we would have had times of, yes, probably famine, or just having you know less or eating less frequently. There would be times when we'd eat more regularly, and it would be a little bit more mixed up and random. It wouldn't just be like, well, I'm just not going to eat breakfast every single day, especially for women. Like, it's very different. So I always tell people, you know, kind of, and I try to think for myself, well, how would that have actually looked in that time, that environment? Like, how would we have, have done this? There may have been times where, like, hey, I, dinner is not available, or maybe lunch wasn't at some point, or maybe breakfast wasn't. Maybe they didn't even 
have a three meal a day kind of standard like we do now. I think it's kind of comical when people get really dogmatic about these, you know, protocols and trends and fads, which is a theme that I come back to often, especially in this podcast is like, try to be a critical thinker and think of yourself in this context that you and I are talking about, who you are as a homo sapien and what your body is actually, how it's designed, how it's supposed to interact with its environment acknowledging the differences of our current environment and then how can we actually best care for ourselves or behave, eat, move, etc., in the ways that our body is actually designed to do versus what sort of the standards are for, for life right now. So what would you say to that, Bruce, as far as like how can we use nutrition and movement specifically to sort of counteract all of these contradictions that we have in our modern lifestyle and culture. Yeah. So when we think about energy storage, we store energy as carbohydrate. It's called glycogen. Glucose is turned into glycogen. And we store it as fat. And they really have two different functions in the body. They both are used to keep the body going, et cetera, et cetera. But but the carbohydrate storage is really best for, for peak. So if you're going to sprint, that's when you want to be able to pull out the carbohydrate storage. If you're going for a marathon, that's when you want to be able to use the fat storage. A typical person can store maybe 1,500 calories of glycogen. And, you know, when I, when I paddle, I'm, I'm burning, you know, 10 to 15 calories a minute. So I can go maybe, maybe 100, you know, hour and a half or so before I've literally burned all the sugar storage out mm. of my body, uh, I probably, well, I know I can't go that far. And that's one of the problems with getting a little bit older is, is nothing works quite the same way it used to. But I'm, I'm 15 to 17% body fat. And when I calculate that out, so from a glycogen storage, I've got maybe 1,000 to 1,500 calories. If, if I convert my 15% body fat into the number of days I can go based on fat, I can go for a month. Mm. And if you look at me, you think that guy's got no fat on him whatsoever. So the problem we've got is that with our eating patterns, if we eat and two hours later we eat and two hours later we eat, well, first of all, the body thinks that's really good, okay, because starvation's right around the corner and I'm going to load up. But when you continue to do it day after day, week after week, month after month, what happens is the body says, well, something new is going on here. And, and I think this is going to be really, really serious. So what it does is it turns off the fat burning switch. And, and so you have to eat every 12 hours. And you're, you're kind of beginning to balloon a little bit because you're converting it to fat, but your body won't let you use it. Yeah. So one of the key ways to get back into it is this idea of um, intermittent fasting and, and sort of the diet that you're on. I mean, we, we don't really do paleo. We do kind of Mediterranean. Uh, mm -hmm. Frankly, we're, we're pretty careful about it, but, but not crazy yeah. about it. But from the standpoint of managing fat burning, we do intermittent fasting. We do it, you know, kind of, twice a week, maybe. Uh, I've got something going on this morning. So yeah, I'm, I'm just going to wait. You know, I finished dinner at six or seven o'clock at night and I'm going to wait till noon to eat. 
it's it's not a hard and fast thing. And and the reality is, is if if I go 18 hours, I'm not hungry. And what that means is I've still got the ability to turn that switch on to burn fat. Yeah, that metabolic flexibility. That metabolic flexibility. Yeah. And and so many of us have have lost it. And and again, the way you lose lose it is by feeding, 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 feeding. So you you've gotta mm-hmm. you've got to break the cycle. And it's not pleasant. It's not hard to do. You just have to be willing to go a little bit hungry for a while. And again, it's I don't recommend intermittent fasting exactly the same thing every day. I think that's absolutely wrong. But if you can't get it, your fat reserves, again, you've got, to, you've got to find a way to break it. No diet you try is ever going to work. Yeah, you might shed a few pounds here and there, but it's going to come right back. Same idea as, as you know, not only waiting for a while in the morning and, and having you know, kind of like a, an 18-hour break, but eating dinner and then going to bed before your stomach is emptied, that again, that tells your body, this food needs to be stored, baby. <laughs> don't, right. don't let any of this go. Convert all this. So, so gosh, at least two hours after you eat, before you go to bed, three is better. You know, let it, yes. let it settle. Go to bed on an empty, stinking stomach. I, I talk often about how your body is actually doing a lot of hard work during sleep. I mean, you're doing detoxification, your cell renewal, muscle repair and recovery. Like there's so much going on. And if your body's trying to digest and devoting all these resources to digestion, you just don't get the level of, of quality sleep. I mean, I can see it on my aura ring. If I eat too late in the evening, I can see that I'm not getting the same amount of deep sleep. You know, I don't wake, wake up feeling as refreshed and rested if I do that. And like you say, it's just the worst thing that you can do metabolically or for fat storage. I, I don't know if this is true, but I've always heard that sumo wrestlers, that that's how they get to be an enormous size is they will, you know, eat these massive meals and then sleep. Easy to believe. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, 10% of our daily caloric burn is digestion. Right. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that. I feel gratified because I think a lot of people are just like, oh, no, no, no fasting is the way. And there's so much science behind it. And it's like, well, yes, but, you know, one of the things that I like to highlight in this show is the difference between men and women. And as you pointed out before, we have a very different machine. And what I see with many clients when they come in is that if they're doing that fasting period, they're skipping breakfast, they maybe don't eat till noon. They are so ravenously hungry by the time that they do eat that they are overeating in those subsequent meals, which is another stressor on your body, right? Then they end up eating either too late or, or so much at dinner that it's just, you know, the body has this huge uphill climb to digest all of it. Um, and it's kind of working against them. They're not getting the sleep. And then when they're not getting good quality sleep, guess what? The appetite and cravings are through the roof. I mean, it just doesn't, I've found that often women do better by, yeah, you can do a restricted feeding window, but doing it a little more randomly and maybe stopping eating earlier in the evening, but having something at, at breakfast, maybe within you know two hours or so of waking, versus just waiting till later and later in the day to eat something. And then they're often having you know, coffee on an empty stomach, which is, again, so stressful um, hormonally for them. It's not great for the blood sugar regulation. It's all these things. So 
Yeah, I think that that's a, a good thing to point out. So we were talking about mitochondria function and yeah. mitochondria like is sort of a new buzzword on the scene. But those of us who've worked in health and for you, the scientific community, we've known for a long time how, you know, the crucial importance of these cool little, what we used to be told or described as in science classes, the the power plant or the powerhouse of the cell. The powerhouse um, of the cell, right. Yeah, the powerhouse of the cell. And like you said, so many people, especially women, are focused on just eating because they want to be thinner or lose weight versus eating for optimal mitochondrial function and truly feeding our cells so that we're supporting our immune function. Circle back a little bit to the, the muscle piece because obviously the mitochondria are in a pretty high concentration in muscle cells. And so when we're talking about not anti-aging, we're talking about aging well, we're talking about maintaining brain health physical functionality, vibrancy of life in every stage as we get older, as you're such a great example of how can we put our muscle to work for us versus that kind of mindset of eat less, exercise more. Well, how are we exercising? How are we nourishing ourselves? Just talk a little bit about the, you know, kind of the function of increasing muscle, maintaining muscle mass as an important factor for caring for ourselves as we age. Yeah. So that the body, as we keep talking about, is, is really sneaky. Okay. It doesn't want to give up calories. If you stop using a muscle, uh, like you put somebody in a cast and, and they'll lose 25, 30% of that muscle size in three or four weeks. And mm -hmm. the reason why is the body says, well, uh, it's not getting used. I'm going to shut the calories off to that and save yeah. those calories. That's Yeah, it's efficiency. That's why they atrophy. But the same thing happens when you start using it again, it, it grows. But if you want it to grow, and, and as muscle grows, you also get more mitochondria in that development. For muscle to grow, you, you've got to give it the right stuff. You know, you've got to water it correctly. And one of the things that many people, and I'm guessing many, many women are deficient in, is protein intake. Yep. We tend to think, well, it's, you know, I get a little bit here, a little bit there. Or, you know, I'm a, a vegan and, and that's good. I'm not really wanting to go out and, and knock that. But the, the problem is, is that you've got to get an appropriate amount of amino acids to grow the muscle. You've got to get an appropriate amount of amino acids to really keep everything together. Our fascial system which is the sort of, you know, weird little connective tissue that surrounds every muscle fiber and every muscle bundle. When we're three weeks of age, our body is more fascia than anything else. Mm. We develop underneath the fascia. And it's this, this collagen protein that that's made of. Bone, tendon, ligament, fascia, it's, it's all collagen. And yeah, it's true. You can, you can take amino acids and, and you can get enough glycine in particular to, to rebuild all of this to help with that, but you've got to get it. Okay. Yeah. And if you're not eating appropriate protein, it's not going to happen. Another problem with, with aging is statistically, this is, this is correct. Individually, it isn't, but figure that you lose 70% of all your life abilities by the time you're 70. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and I've got, I've got graphs, I've got graphs that show all of that. 
you talk about sarcopenia, that's age-related muscle loss. It happens for connective tissue muscle. It happens for heart muscle. It happens for collagen. The melatonin, 70% loss by the time you're 80 or 90. Stem cells, by the time you're 80, stem cells, which are the general contractors of the body, which rebuild everything, which is why it takes us so long to recover from an injury, 99.5% of the stem cells are gone by the time you're 80 years old. When you look at, at every facet, it, it kind of runs that way. Now, it doesn't have to happen quite like that. You can slow it down. And one of the things that, praise God, I've been able to do, and my wife has been able to do, is we've been able to slow that down. Uh, part of it is this, this cognition that we have to move. Part of it is she's been very careful about her diet, which she feeds me. Uh, her mom is 92, living alone, still growing strong. We're afraid that she's going to outlive us all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but she was always very, very careful about her diet and really limited the processed foods. And, and now she's on a protein kick. Bruce, I, you know, I need more protein. What do I do? How do tell me what to take? How do we do this? So, you know, we're, we're kind of giving her ideas on, on how to up the protein. Whey protein is, is great. Whey protein has leucine in it. Leucine is probably the most essential amino acid for, uh, for muscle building. Uh, I take a little bit of leucine every day. My wife takes a little bit of leucine every day. And again, glycine for collagen and, and we take collagen supplements. The other problem with, with protein is, and again, if, if you're working with your, your clientele on chronometer, uh, you'll have a really good idea of this, but it's hard to spread it out. So what we've learned is that you're not going to assimilate much more than 30 grams of protein at any one given sitting. Okay. And when I look at, at my protein needs, for me to be putting on muscle, I need about 150 grams of protein a day. It's per pound of body weight that you're yeah. saying yeah. One, one and a half, well, yeah. Well, yeah. So, but if I can only assimilate 30 grams at any one sitting, I mean, how am I going to get that much protein? Yeah. And I've heard some argument about that too, whether we can or we can't. It's interesting. Um, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon talks about that a lot. I'm curious to learn more along those lines of protein utilization, assimilation, Um but yeah, and, and I think too, one question I ask here is, you know, what are some really common myths about aging? And I think that one of them is that we don't need as much protein when in fact we need more. Yes, absolutely. We absolutely need more protein when we age. And again, it's, it's because our ability to take all of these raw materials, you know, keeping in mind that, you know, you, you eat the cow, right? And you, you eat it and it gets broken down into all these itty bitty little components. Mm -hmm. And then within each cell, it, it reassembles it as needed. You know, we mm -hmm. talked about our 30 trillion cells. You know what? Yeah. These things are little factories. Our cells do somewhere between 100,000 and 1 million chemical reactions per second. It's incredible. You know, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, DNA. If, if, you, if you take all of our DNA uh, and stretch it out, the DNA in, in one cell it's compressed by enzymatic activity. If you stretched out the DNA in one cell, it's, it's six feet. If you take the DNA in all of our cells, it goes around the solar system. Uh, but, you know, getting, getting back to how we do this, muscle has to be moved. If we don't move it, we lose it. And again, for somebody who's, who's just, you know, trying to start out, yeah, keep it easy. 
walking is awesome. You know, being in a pool and doing a little bit of movement that way is awesome. I've been invited to yoga classes where I went in and watched and it was seated yoga. Mm. It was, it was mm -hmm. very specifically for folks who had limited mobility. Yeah. And, and there's lots of, of ways to do it. But, you know, when you move, that function alone begins to build muscle. And mm. as you build muscle, it's going to staff it with mitochondria. <laughs> and as it's staffed with mitochondria, all these processes are going to begin to improve. Right. And one of my favorite processes there, or pieces of that, is insulin sensitivity. Yeah. You know, especially because we are bombarded with so many of these, you know, and it's funny because like you're talking about the sort of, you know, generational like cohort study. Uh -huh. And, yeah. you know, I think back to growing up in the 80s and 90s, not only were we supposed to eat low fat, high carbohydrate and everything was completely sugar laden, but we were supposed to eat every two hours. So it's like all of these messages and misinformation that have been drilled into our brains. And so women, especially of my generation, anywhere from, you know, like late thirties into their fifties are steeped in this nonsense. Right. And so a lot of people in general, especially Americans now are dealing with insulin resistance on some level because of this sort of, you know, the constant eating, the high glycemic foods, processed foods, things like that. And when we have more muscle cells, more mitochondria firing off, we are more insulin sensitive or more what I like to refer to as, you know, carbohydrate tolerant, like your body can get more into that metabolic flexibility. We can prevent things like diabetes more readily, you know, all of those things. And when we're, our blood sugar isn't all over the map, up and down, our energy is better. We are a little more motivated, more likely to move our bodies. But when we're sitting and then we're eating processed foods. It's like this awful, vicious cycle. And then it downregulates our energy and we don't feel like doing it. And then we don't sleep well. So we're even more tired. So what do we do? We stimulate with, you know, caffeine. We wind down with alcohol. Like it's just this awful sort of downward spiral of symptoms that we're creating. And I see someone like you who's doing exactly the opposite. And it's really exciting because I think that going back to one of the sort of myths of aging, we're told like, oh, you know, menopause is going to be horrible and just wait. And, oh, you, you know, I mean, I've had young women like in their early 30s be like, well, I think my metabolism is just slowing down. It's like, no, this is not, <laughs> this is not what's going on. This doesn't have to happen. You can actually stay really active. I mean, yeah, we have to do the work to, to get into it. But I love that you're kind of highlighting like, hey, it's never too late to start. You don't have to walk out and be, you know, doing what you're doing, training every day of the week and doing these amazing sports, like you can just start with doing chair yoga or something, whatever it is, just start moving your body, eat real food. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the reality is, is if somebody who hasn't walked much, they're going to get a lot more tired from a short walk than I mm -hmm. do from furious paddling for two miles. That's a good point. Yeah. Get out there and do it. It'll be a lot better for them. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the, um, just to be conscious about your time and everything here. I know we've, we've talked for a while, but I'd love for you to share with us, what is your favorite thing, Bruce, about being your age? I mean, as someone who has taken good care of their body and, you know, is still going strong, not slowing down much, if at all, what's your favorite thing about this stage of life? Gratitude. Mm. Being at this stage of life, 
with the relationship I've had with my wife and my children and their husbands and our eight grandchildren and you know, the, the paddling and, and windsurfing communities and my, my work community. Uh, I work because I love the work and I love the people. I don't have to work. And, you know, just knowing that, you know, life is really a gift. And if you don't look at it as a gift, you're never going to open the present. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's a really a good thing to remember. I love that. I think it's really easy for us to think in that sort of someday mindset, I'll be happy or I'll feel good about myself or I'll enjoy life when especially when it comes to our physical bodies as women. So often I hear, well, I'll be able to like myself. I'll feel good about myself when I'm X size or I can fit into such and such a pair of pants or I look a certain way or I make more money, whatever it might be. So I think that that's a really good important point and anchor for us to, to circle back to. And I love too, just hearing you talk about, like for some people this may be crazy, sciencey kind of, information, but if we can start to just really appreciate how incredible and amazing machine our body is, if we can start to sort of be in a place of sort of awe and wonder and appreciation, even if we don't love what we look like in that time and space, we can kind of go, oh, my body is only ever just trying to keep me alive and functioning. It's not working against me. I just need to work for it and with it in partnership and just be really grateful for all the things that I can do and people I can hug with this body, whatever it might be, and and see movement as a, a birthright and a privilege and an, a joy to like just be able to do these things and get out, whether it's walking or chair yoga or popping in a pool versus like, oh, I have to work out. I have to exercise. I think we see it as this weird sort of like obligation or just an additional stressor in our lives when it's actually, no, it's a stress relief. Like your body's designed to do this. And if you just give it what it needs, you'll start to enjoy it. You'll feel better, all the things. So two more questions for you. One personal, if you could go back and tell your younger self something, what would that be? And is there anything that you would do differently than you've done when it comes to your health and fitness? Not really. 10 years ago, my wife was diagnosed with a terminal incurable cancer. And it, it absolutely rocked us. I'd been doing a lot of research uh, on health from an endurance health and sports-related health at that point. Uh, I was getting a little bit closer to, you know, kind of retirement from full-time work. We got pulled into the, you know, the whole medical thing with that. She had an unnecessary surgery. She was recommended a treatment protocol that probably would have ended her life already, mm. with what we know about it now. And the reality is that she's never had Western medical treatment for it. Mm. For all intents and purposes, it no longer exists in her body. Wow. And so, again, these, these weird things come up. And to me, everything we've talked about today, everything I think of and do when I talk to people about health or how our bodies work, you know, kind of relates back to the fact that we, we went through trauma. I mean, we, we didn't know what was going on. We didn't, we yeah. knew this thing was, was really serious, but we were able to slow the thing down, began to understand uh, how the medical community, you know, works. And the fact that on top of the unnecessary surgery, we literally 
were read a gross prescription based on the fact that I know now the doctor was walking from one appointment to the other and misread the lab results. So I mean, I, I, I'm saying this, and it's it's you know what I've what I've learned if I could go back and and the learning is, has been it isn't that I do anything differently. It's just that I realized that you've really got to be an advocate for your own health. If you think you're going to have serious news given to you by a doctor or a practitioner, you should really have somebody there with you. Because personally, as, as somebody saying, hey, you need surgery for this, this has to happen. You know, if, if, I've, if I've got a double hernia, I can deal with that. You know, it's not a big deal. But if somebody says, yeah, you know, I looked at the CT scans and your, your left nodes are lit up like a Christmas tree and you don't have somebody there to help you understand what that might mean or ask the doctor more questions, you're just going to freak. So you should really have an advocate there with you. By the same token, I, I, our medical practice, I mean, I've got, I've got a grandson who has Down syndrome, and he was born with a heart that had two chambers and one valve. He just went through his third open heart surgery. He is absolutely thriving but let's think about the fact that he was eight weeks old at his first surgery, and with a heart that was the size of a walnut, they built a couple of chambers and a couple of valves. Now, some of it was mechanical and some of it's man-made, and he'll probably have to have another open heart at some time because as he grows, not all of it grows at the same rate, but he had an open heart two months ago, and four days after that, we had to kind of calm him down to keep him from jumping up and down and playing jumping jacks because he healed so wow. quickly. Wow. So our, our medical practice is both absolutely amazing mm -hmm. and can be absolutely frightening. So work with making sure that you've got an advocate for your health. And that's one of the things that you and your practice is so valuable for other people. So I, I think all of us Thank need you. to appreciate the folks that do what you and your brethren do. Well, I appreciate that. And I think it does really help. And I've had my own health challenges. I call it my health adventures. Bad experiences, good experiences, and everything in between with, with mainstream medical and naturopathic or natural medicine, both of them. You know, there's, there's good and bad in every bunch. And I think that being your own advocate is, is necessary in every aspect of life, but especially when we're talking about our health and I think also learning to come from a place of empowerment versus seeking savior, right? Always seeking someone to do it for you or to fix it for you, give you all the answers. Coming from a place of empowerment instead says, okay, I can accept guidance and support along this journey. And there may be doctors and surgeries and different things that are the answer for me as an individual in my situation. But I think really stepping back and kind of coming from a place of empowerment and learning what you can about these different things instead of just being prostrate to whatever doctor as God is dictating you should do. Because I know that, you know, some of the older generation in my life, like if a doctor said it, they would never question it, especially women too. I think that, you know, often they're not taken seriously or they're afraid to question doctors, be they male or female doctors. But all of us, we need to just really go, okay, sure. It doesn't mean that we're writing off science or <laughs> disagreeing with science. It means that as an individual, certain things may be right for you and certain things may not. And we need to be able to step back and figure out what those things are and come from a place of empowered choices and educated choices versus just waiting for somebody to fix it 
for us, which I think just circles back to everything that we've been talking today. Be proactive with your movement, moving your body, the food choices that you make. Don't assume that just because it's FDA approved, it's good for you or safe, or because something's a daily RDA, that that's the same as optimal. It's not. You may need more. We're all so different. And so thank you for sharing that story. I think that that's really, really powerful because again, it really drives home the point that whether it's a diagnosis or whether it's just aging, like that doesn't have to be a death sentence. It doesn't have to be a, a horrible uphill climb. Like we can grab the horse by the reins and at least do everything that we can to make it as good as possible, right? For the best possible outcome. Right. So if there's just one or two small steps, I know that you mentioned just kind of moving in whatever way that you can, but in addition to that, you know, for people that want to start taking some really simple steps, I always encourage people like do what feels easy and doable for you at first. Don't try and, you know, choose some giant insurmountable task or goal. So if there's a couple of small things that people can start to do or start thinking about to improve their health span at whatever stage of life that they're in, what would you say? Oh, this is, this is going to sound so wrong uh, <laughs> because every, everything I would say is don't take the pill, don't take the pill. But what I'm going to say is take a vitamin D3 supplement. Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So, Especially here in the Northwest. My gosh. Yeah. So um, we've got 20,000 genes, give or take. Uh, within those 20,000 genes, there's 4,000 binding sites for vitamin D. Without optimal vitamin D, there is no way you're going to be in optimal health. It's not just bone function. It's, it's not just you know, skin. It's, it's everything dealing with immune response and especially cancer response. Vitamin D is very potent against cancers. Take four to 5,000 IU a day. Uh, the older you are, the, the more you need. I've got all sorts of studies that I can forward to you, Jeannie, showing that at, at 4,000 IU a day, you probably, probably get up to a satisfactory blood serum level. You may need a little more than that. But even, even the studies on vitamin D3 and, and COVID response oh, are absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. Folks with inadequate vitamin D3, even if they're otherwise in pretty good health, inadequate vitamin D3 is almost a death sentence. Yep. It is absolutely impossible in the Pacific Northwest most times of the year to get enough. So D3 and, and then, you know, we talk diet, we talk movement, you talk sleep a little bit. Sleep is, is tremendously important. And I, I know that for most of my career, it's, hey, man, I can get by with five hours of sleep. You know, it made you a man. No, it's, it's, yeah. absolutely, it's absolutely health destroying. Mm -hmm. And we could, we could talk for half an hour about what happens during sleep right. and sleep cycle. But yeah, circadian rhythms, vitamin D3, exercise, movement, sleep, and you might be a new person. Yes. Amen to that. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, Bruce, this has just been awesome. And I really appreciate your time and sharing all of your wisdom and experiences with us. And I just noticed too that we match. We're both wearing sort of a oh, yellow. Yellow. <laughs> I've got a, I've got a race jersey. I've got nice. closets full of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We're embracing spring here in the Northwest. That's right. But I don't know if I've told you this, but we have a little saying at our house sometimes. And it's, you know, when we're kind of knowing that we should get out and do something or get that workout in, but we're not really feeling it, we'll go, oh, what would Bruce do? What would Bruce Berry do? Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Okay. <laughs> WWBD. And, um, <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'll ask that to Christian sometimes. I go, he'll be debating. I'll go, what, what, what did Bruce do? And he's like, ah, oh, you're right. I got to go. Oh, wow. <laughs> so. I had obviously had no idea. <laughs> well, now you know. Now you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, we appreciate you so much. And thank you so much for sharing this. And where can people find you if they want to connect? Yeah. Well, I, I don't actually have a, a business anymore. I mean, <laughs> I, I had one, but... Uh, I, I let that drop. I guess maybe I need to start something again. Yeah, my my email, no caps, B as in boy, B as in boy, A-R-R-Y-6186 at AOL.com. Okay. And I probably get three or four health-related questions a week, and it's just just kind of the thing I do to fill my time because I enjoy it. Okay, awesome. I love that. Thank you. That's very generous for you to share that. Yeah. Very cool. Put that in the show notes for everybody. Yep. Well, thanks again for being here. Really my pleasure. Yeah, this is a great conversation and we will we'll have you on again. Okay. Dive a little deeper one of these days. Say hi, say hi to my buddy Christian. <laughs> I will. Thanks, okay. Bruce. Bye. Hey there. I'm so glad you hung out with me today. And if you enjoyed the show, please share it, subscribe, and leave me a review. It only takes a minute and it helps me achieve my mission of giving more women the tools to feel better and enjoy life more. Also, check out the show notes for links to connect with me and learn more about the information and products featured in each episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. And now for all the legal stuff. I am not a doctor, and the content here should not be taken as medical advice. All information in this podcast is for informational purposes only, does not constitute medical advice, and does not establish any kind of practitioner or coach-client relationship. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. Do not disregard medical advice or delay seeking medical advice because of information you hear in this podcast, and do not start or stop any medications without speaking to your health provider. Always seek the advice of a qualified health practitioner before undertaking any new health regimen. This podcast and website represents the opinions of Jeannie Oliver and guests to the show. Opinions of guests are their own and do not reflect the opinions of Jeannie Oliver Wellness LLC or our producers. 